there's things that I hear on a day-to-day basis from people that just flat out aren't true. They're said as if they're a hard fact, but they're just not true. And a lot of these come from just casual, you know, buyers and sellers and clients where they just kind of caught this idea, this common myth. But some of these actually come from real estate agents and real estate attorneys too, who haven't really bothered to look behind some of these innocuous myths. Mm -hmm. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Welcome to the Real Estate Law Podcast. My name is Jason Muth and I'm one of your hosts and we are here with attorney, real estate broker, Rory Gill. Good to be here, Jason. From Next Home Title Town Real Estate and Urban Village Legal in Boston. That is right. Yep. So we're, we're trying a couple new things out today. First, let me just say that the, the topic that we have is pretty cool. It is all about real estate myths, M-Y-T-H-F. So like mythology, things that maybe are true and, and maybe aren't. But Rory's going to dispel some of these things that we all think are known to be true. And he'll confirm a couple of them that actually are. And we'll get it. We, we, we can't really tease what it is just yet. I know haunted houses is on the list and, you know, what is a legal bedroom? That's coming up too, but pause that for now. We can't tease try- it, but I'm going to tease it. Yes. Good job. <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying something new. We're actually recording with new software called Riverside.fm. We've been doing a couple episodes on Zoom, but, you know, some things that are happening around here with the Real Estate Law Podcast, we're trying to make our systems a little bit more efficient because we are getting close to welcoming guests onto the podcast. As some of you know who are listening, who, who know us, the, the way that we record is we, we tend to record a couple of these in batches, and we have a great producer named John who takes care of cleaning up the audio and the video and gets final episodes ready. We usually post once a week. But we do work a couple weeks ahead. A lot of podcasters do that. And we just wanted to get a bunch of new episodes up live before we started soliciting for guests. But we're, we're going to start doing that soon. So if you are listening to this and would love to be a guest on this podcast and you have a topic about real estate or real estate law, or you just want to chat with us for whatever reason on camera, then you could uh, reach out to either one of us. You can email me, Jason at nexthometitletown.com or Rory at nexthometitletown.com. And we'll, we'll schedule you. We're trying out the new software because we heard this was pretty cool. So we got a free trial. And if we like this, then we will subscribe to this. It was pretty easy to, to get into the room, right? You got an invite right. and everything. Absolutely. And the viewers get to see me in crystal clear, clear HD, which is what everybody was asking about. Right. I know. I was thinking, thinking about that. Like, do I really want to be in a clearer picture? But, you know, some people are listening to the audio. We also have this posted to YouTube, which is also new. And we are also posting this to Instagram TV, Next Home Title Town real estate page. So hopefully there's lots of different ways that people can listen to us and find out all they want to know about real estate law. All right. With that said, let's get into the topic for this week. We are talking about common myths about real estate laws. So, so Rory, tell us about what these myths, like you hear a lot of stuff in your everyday comings and goings in dealing with buyers and sellers and developers and all these folks that are in the real estate world. In thinking through these myths, it was not hard to come up with some. There's things that I hear on a day-to-day basis from people that just flat out aren't true. They're said as if they're a hard fact, 
but they're just not true. And a lot of these come from just casual, you know, buyers and sellers and clients where they just kind of caught this idea, this common myth. But some of these actually come from real estate agents and real estate attorneys too, who haven't really bothered to look behind some of these innocuous myths. Mm -hmm. So there's some interesting ones that I want to throw out here. And if this works, I mean, we have, there are plenty of other myths and misunderstandings out there that we can uncover and debunk in the future. Right. So on the, on the long list of myths that you put together, we picked five for the purpose of this episode, but you know, we could certainly do future episodes about more real estate myths because the, the list is pretty endless, especially when you're watching HGTV and DIY Network and all the home improvement shows that everyone loves to watch on the weekends or just to kill time. There's probably some stuff that happens that you're seeing on TV that isn't, isn't really how it goes down. Absolutely. So the first one on your list, we, I, I, we got to jump right into to one, of, one of the best ones, is about haunted houses. Okay, so tell us about what the deal is. A real estate agent has to disclose that a house is haunted or that this was a crime scene. Is that true? Yeah, so this is one of the biggest myths that I've heard. And in some other states, the rule is a little bit different. But there's the, the idea that a real estate agent has to let you know that if a house was haunted or if it's a crime scene. So sorry to start off so in such a, with a, such a dark myth, but that's a myth that I do hear all the time, that a real estate agent has to disclose if a house or a home was a crime scene or a haunted house. That's not true at all. And this is one of the easiest ones to debunk because there's a specific Massachusetts law that says that a real estate agent has no obligation whatsoever to disclose if a property is, quote, psychologically impacted by a murder, suicide, felony, or an alleged haunting. I don't know how you'd prove that in the first place, but that's that's clearly the rule in Massachusetts. It's to prevent stigmatized property from being depressed in the market. If there's nothing wrong with the actual home itself, it's not up to the real estate agent to look into the paranormal or the spiritual on your behalf. The home, If the home is structurally sound, that's where the real estate obligation, real estate agent's obligations end. So buyer beware, if the home was built on top of, I don't know, old graveyard, it probably wouldn't have been done, right? You know, because grave sites are pretty well preserved. But if some crimes happened many years ago, and some bodies might have been buried down below the foundation in some neighborhoods here in Boston, and if those properties are still haunted by those spirits, you don't have to say anything. It will... In that particular situation, you might have a scenario where there's a legal impediment to the house, where the house could be threatened with demolition to restore the cemetery or something like that. That's a whole different thing because that's a practical concern for the house. But if somebody says that they saw, you know, a ghost in the upstairs, that's not something the real estate agent has to pay any mind to, has no obligation to, to disclose whatsoever. And if a buyer comes back all upset with a real estate agent for not disclosing it, that real estate agent's protected 100% by Massachusetts law. The only caveat I have to real estate agents is to avoid the the I don't know when you do know of a situation. Obviously, the haunting is kind of a ridiculous situation, but if it's if there's a crime in the home and the real estate agent does know about it, it is a misrepresentation for the real estate agent to say I don't know. But the real estate agent would be within the right to say I prefer not to disclose that information or go into that. So, um, so ridiculous is all about perspective. I mean, come on, the paranormal paranormal is something a lot of people believe in. You have to think back to the episode of the Brady Bunch back when the kids didn't want the house sold. So they, they, they pretended like it was haunted and they had ghosts and everything and Alice got scared. I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? Right. But see, you're, you're, you're citing the Brady Bunch is the reason why we should be disclosing this information. 
Yes. Well, I mean, that, that was a, a moment in history. I mean, I remember that episode so clearly, but, you know, that's just I mean, me. Maybe, I think- maybe reluctant tenants that don't want to leave can try to sabotage a sale with, uh, sale with that. But it's, you're not going to see that in the MLS listing and the real estate agent's not going to tell you anything about that. Okay. All right. So don't have to say anything if the house is haunted. Now, what about myth number two? Is it up to the real estate agent to disclose all the problems they find out about the house? Now, we're not talking about paranormal. We're not mm-hmm. talking about haunting. We're just talking about problems that the agent knows, like yes. true or false. So now, yeah. So now we're getting into kind of a more practical application of the same thing. But we do hear all the time that it's up to the real estate agent to disclose everything that's wrong with the property. You know, if you if you go find something else that's wrong with the property, you should sue the real estate agent because they should have disclosed it to you. That's not the rule, at least not here in Massachusetts. The real estate agent's obligation is not to mislead or make any misrepresentations to the buyer or the seller. And that's kind of where the obligations here end. There are a lot of ways where that comes into play, and there are a lot of times where you may want to proactively disclose problems with the property as a sales method. If things are going to get caught in the home inspection, if things are going to undermine your your reputation, or if they're just otherwise going to get in the way, or if you want to build trust, proactively disclosing things can be a really good idea. But the real estate agent here is not under, under any obligation to investigate the property. It's not up to the real estate agent, the listing agent, to crawl around and take a look to see if there are problems in the, with the property. It's not up to the listing agent to disclose everything that might be wrong with the property. But the real the listing agent has to walk a fine line where they don't disclose, don't misrepresent anything with the property. And again, I don't know can be a misrepresentation when you do, in fact, know. Now, a lot of properties these days are going under agreement without inspection contingencies. Now, Mm -hmm. those that are still going forward with inspections, and I, I kind of feel bad for the home inspector industry these days with such a hot market, since maybe they're busy, maybe they're not. But think about If there was a home inspection and an agent is there at the inspection and they find out some stuff that the buyer then backs out as a result, so you put the house back on the market, what do you do with that information? So if their listing agent's informed of material problems with the home, there does come a a point at which some things do have to be disclosed in order to prevent a misrepresentation from being made. Kind of a fundamental understanding when you're listing a home for sale and the description says something, you know, come make this your your home, your family will love it here, anything along those lines, you're suggesting that a home is habitable in the condition that it is now. And if you do find information that undercuts that message, well, now you have to disclose it in order to prevent that misrepresentation. So rep- representing a property as move-in ready or just in a way that a, a common consumer would think that the, the home is habitable as it is, so you want to disclose things that undercut that. So take a look at what you're saying. If the, if a property is described as, you know, as is, that protects an agent somewhat. But that's a, a signal that this is a home that might be better suited to a developer or a renovation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So haunting, disclosures with problems, mm-hmm. myth one, myth two, myth three. There is a way to exempt yourself from property taxes. So this is a crazy myth that I've heard on multiple occasions, and I'm not sure if this is coming from a certain segment of in the political world, but there's a a myth out there that you can exempt yourself somehow from property taxes. You hear this in some maybe really activist libertarian circles, that there's some legalistic ways that you could, you know, 
send a letter refusing to pay your property taxes or there's some sort of constitutional right to personal sovereignty. None of that is true. The municipality has the full right to charge you property taxes. You're not going to get out of it and the municipality will win that battle. There are some programs out there that minimize your property tax exposure. For example, residential exemptions in some communities if it's your primary residence, a circuit breaker tax credit that helps some senior citizens. But no, you're not going to get out of paying your your personal your real estate property tax. Okay, you mentioned a couple of things here. I want to unpack a little bit. Let's say that you buy a building that might have been an old church or something, and they renovate it and convert it into condos. The church is probably exempt from paying property taxes in in many places. So, are you now exempt from paying property taxes? No, but you may luck out in a couple of tax bills that, as the municipality has to catch up and reassess the property for its new use, you may get the benefit of one or two skip tax bills, but that they will catch up to you and that will that use will end. Okay. Now, what about, let's talk about like just here in Boston, because you did mention residential exemptions. And, and I don't know this, but I'm guessing that there are residential exemptions throughout the country in lots of municipalities. Talk about Boston specifically, since we know that rule, as to how to get a residential exemption on your property taxes, because... We have that, and those are things I know that in the past you've 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 helped take care of at the closing or soon after the closing. But I also know some people that thought they had the exemption, and then for some reason the the next tax bill came in the following year, and the exemption that they thought they had went away. So talk mm-hmm. through that a little bit. So sure. So Boston has a primary resident exemption for on your property tax which exempts a certain amount of your value to start. So it's about $270,000 of value. The first $270,000 of value is exempt from property tax. That is a moving target and changes year to year, but it's a significant tax savings for it being your primary residence. In order to qualify, you have to submit paperwork on time and you have to submit it the first quarter of the calendar year after you've owned the property for a full year. That's your window to apply for the very valuable tax if you mm-hmm. exemption. If you miss it, you have to wait another year to apply. There, there's no going back. When you buy a property from a seller who already has the residential exemption, you benefit from that for your first few property tax bills, whether or not you actually are entitled to the tax, uh, the tax exemption. So again, the, the city is a little slow to catch up with the transactions by, uh, by design. So if you're buying it from somebody who used the home as a primary resident, then you'll enjoy the exemption from day one. In fact, there would be no lapse when you apply for it yourself. But if you buy a property from somebody who didn't use it as a primary resident, you're not going to enjoy the benefits until your second year of ownership. Right. But I I think that the key there in in the, the, the former example is if you purchase a property in Boston from somebody who does have a residential exemption, there's a transaction right now. So you might see your tax bills and the exemption will be there. But then the next year, if you didn't apply yourself during the window, that exemption might go away, right? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly your tax bill is higher and you're going to say, well, what happened here? I thought I had the exemption. And the answer is, well, you also have to apply because you just purchased the property. Yeah. The city is fairly good about getting that notice out to, to home buyers at the time to apply. But it's ultimately your responsibility. If they have the wrong address on file or the mailman loses it, there are no do-overs. So if you owned a property on January 1st, 2021, and you want to get the exemption, the first calendar quarter of 2022 is when you're going to be able to apply and get that for yourself. 
And right. be sure to do it. If you already have the exemption carried over from the seller, still apply for it in, in your own name. So, and those are, those are Boston rules. I mean, since that's where you're based, but let's, let's encourage people who are listening to this, who are probably listening around the country, if not around the world to, to look at their municipality. So what should they be doing? They should talk to their real estate agent. They should go to the city website where they live and, and find out what the rules are. Like how, how would you recommend somebody, for example, in Seattle or Houston or Little Rock? Talk to your real estate agent if they're an expert in the community, but ultimately it is your responsibility. Go onto the website of your municipality or other government entity. I know other states pay property taxes to the county or school district or other entities. In Massachusetts, we just pay it to our town or city. But you do want to make sure that if you're eligible for this exemption that you are keeping up with the government tells you to do. Right. Okay. And it can get really confusing too if you're having your taxes, if you're having them escrowed, you know, then sometimes... You know, the first couple of years of escrow, you know, I've been in situations where like you're having a lot withheld and you get this big check randomly sent to you saying we withheld too much. And the next year there is a shortage and now they're throwing more money onto your bill. And, it, you know, this certainly doesn't help if, you know, the tax bill isn't necessarily right. And don't rely on your lender if they're keeping escrow to do this work for you. You know, they are paying the tax bill for you, but they're, it's not their responsibility to look out for you. That's 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 on you to do. My first lender. Wow. I had a fight with them over escrow because for some reason they weren't paying the taxes correctly. And, you know, I certainly was not nice to them on the telephone when I told them that I was no longer going to be paying escrow. And they reminded me that it was a condition of my mortgage. So I promptly refinanced and I've never worked with them again. But that, that's me. Okay, so we're talking myths and common myths in real estate laws. So we're up to myth number four. And myth number four today is that new construction homes must come with a warranty. Is that true or false? It's mostly false. So we hear, this is something I hear a lot, the assumption that new construction homes have to come with a warranty. That isn't true. That probably comes from the idea that most builders in our area, by custom, actually do offer a warranty for one year. That's kind of the market standard and the market expectation, but that is not the law. In fact, that warranty is something that is negotiated between the, the seller developer and the buyer as part of the offer to purchase or the purchase and sale agreement. There's a standard form warranty that a lot of developer sellers will use. It's a pretty good tool for somebody and we do see it a lot, but there's not that obligation that they provide that one year. So that means don't fall back and think this is a law that's going to protect you. Look at the paperwork early in the process. When you put the offer in, often there'll be a sample warranty or can be negotiated with the purchase and sale agreement. But take a look at it because it's not, it's not automatic. And there is, I say it's mostly false, in part because there are some protections for new construction for the first three years that you, that you own it. Again, this is state-specific, but the concept may apply elsewhere. But in Massachusetts, there's the implied warranty of habitability, which means that a developer has to give you a habitable home. But that's a really tight standard. That In order to benefit from that protection in law, the home would have to be uninhabitable because of a safety code violation, because of structural unsoundness, or just really clear unsafe conditions. This is not a matter of the cabinet's falling apart or something like that. That This, this law protects just the, the bare basics mm -hmm. of the home. So buyer beware, make sure this is part of the contract that you're signing with the developer. 
So, so, but the actual one-year warranty, if indeed it is, it is offered, that would cover things like the cabinet fell off, right? That's not a that's not an inhabitable issue, but that's the the builder warranting his or her work, right? Yep, and that's where that's why you want to take a look at the warranty and see what exactly is covered, because the warranty, even the best warranty, is not going to say everything, no matter what is covered for the first year. There are going to be restrictions and limitations and itemizations of what exactly is covered. So mm-hmm. take a look at it. Know what you're signing up for. Do do builders work with insurance companies? Like they'll offer the warranty because they can get the work insured or how does that all work? Do you know? Lar- largely, this is a liability held by the, the builder. They may have mm-hmm. some insurance to buffet them, but good reputable builders will actually, after a sale, hold some money in their account for a full year and kind of anticipate that some things will be done. In fact, the warranty in some ways is a service. It's not always because a builder did something bad. Houses settle. Things, issues come up more so in the first year than any other year. So oh, yeah. it's an, So even the best developer is going to probably come back and have to touch things up in the first year. But to protect their reputation, they'll make sure that this is accounted for. Right, right. And, and, you know, I've bought new construction twice now here in Boston and in both situations, you know, there've been a couple things that we've had to go back to the builder and say, Hey, this isn't working or this broke or this is cracking or whatever. And, and for the most part, they fix it because they also want to have a good reputation within, within the community, because this, unless this is their only project and then they, they skip town, odds are they're doing something else nearby and, and they want to have, have a good name because it's a very, very small community. And word gets around really quickly if somebody's screwing others. Yep. But on the other hand, there are some developers who will close up shop, dissolve their corporate entity, or declare bankruptcy. And at that point, it's really difficult to get any recovery from that. Right. Okay, so we're up to myth number five. This is our fifth and final myth today. And myth number five has to do with bedrooms. And I've heard this a lot, that a bedroom has to have a closet to be considered a bedroom. Very simple. Is that true? Not at all. This one drives me crazy, not only because of how uh, pervasive it is, but because I hear it from other real estate agents all the time. It is not true. A bedroom does not need a closet to meet the legal definition of a bedroom. Not totally sure where it comes from. You know, a marketable bedroom, it's nice to have a closet, but that's not a requirement. There are some requirements that, that go into what makes a legal bedroom. We don't need to discuss every single one of them, but the key thing is there's a minimum size to a bedroom. The ceiling has to be a certain height. There have to be two means of egress. That's a fairly large condition. You know, one way through the home and one way to the outside. Usually a window meets that requirement if you if the window is large enough for a human to, to, to escape from. A bedroom has to be able to have heat in it. You can't just have an unheated bedroom, at least not here in Massachusetts. It has to have electrical outlets so that there can be light. In a bedroom, the layout has to, it can't be a room that's a thoroughfare to other rooms. It has to be uh, private. It can't be a connecting room. But those are those are descriptions of, of the layout of the room. Nothing, there's nothing in there that says there has to be a closet. And do you, can you call it a bedroom without a closet or does it have to be called a study? I'm guessing you can call it a bedroom. You can call it a bedroom. The as long as it meets those requirements in there. So there are situations where a private room may be called a study, but it might meet, it might fail one of the other dimensional requirements that exist for the bedroom. Got it. So bedroom does not have to have a closet. That we're, we're saying it here. 
Nope, but I bet I'm going to hear this this one told as if it's a hard and true fact by the end of the weekend from somebody else. But that's <laughs> I hear this one all the time. That's not a requirement. Delete that one from your memory. There are requirements out there, but that's not one of them. Now, what if there is a ghost in a closet? Does the broker have to disclose that? I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> that ties back to number one, too. Yeah. If there's a ghost in the closet, then it's definitely a bedroom. That's okay. the takeaway. Good to know. Okay, great. Well, thank you for putting together a couple of the common myths. We'll make sure that we do episodes like this in the future because there's so many truths and untruths floating around out there. A couple quick housekeeping things. So if you're listening to this on, on iTunes or elsewhere, we love it if you could subscribe to the podcast just so you're updated whenever we post a new episode, which should be weekly. If you're watching this on YouTube, we love it if you'd like this. Feel free to comment also. We read all the comments. We will comment back if it warrants a comment, if you're asking a question or whatnot. Where can listeners find us or where can they find you specifically? I'm pretty easy to find at Next Home Title Town, nexthometitletown.com or Urban Village Legal, urbanvillagelegal.com. And once again, if you're listening and you have something to say, you'd like to be a guest on this podcast, we would love to have you. So feel free to reach out to either one of us. Jason at nexthometitletown.com will come my way. Rory at nexthometitletown will come over to Rory. We'll get you all set up. We'll get you booked and we'll get talking to you on a future episode. So thank you, Rory. We really appreciate it. That's all I got. You got anything else? Nope, that's it. Well, every time I hear something that's not true, I'm going to write it down and save it for the next Mythbuster episode. Excellent. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town. Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.